Today's episode of the BS Podcast is brought to you by SeatGeek, our presenting sponsor since 1962. Find the best tickets for sports, music, wrestling, opera, whatever you want. I have SeatGeek on my phone. It's by far the easiest way to shop for the best tickets thanks to their revolutionary grading system. I would highly recommend SeatGeek if you're trying to steal some last-minute NBA or NHL playoff tickets because I feel like people are getting better and better at those stealing those last-minute bargains. SeatGeek is the place to do that. Buy and sell tickets and just two taps on your phone. Everything fully guaranteed. Try it out. Download the SeatGeek app today or go right to SeatGeek.com. We're also brought to you by my old friend, Simply Safe. In the past, you couldn't order home security online, but now with Simply Safe Home Security, it's a snap to do it, making it. They make it easier than ever to protect your home and your family. It takes less than an hour to set up your system and protect your home even better. No long-term contracts. 24-7 professional protection service for just $15 a month. Go to simplysafebs.com today to protect your home and get 10% off. That's Simply Safe with two eyes. BS.com. And finally, we are brought to you by the Ringer NBA Show. That's our NBA podcast hosted by Chris Vernon. It's good. We got a lot of Ringer people and a whole bunch of other people that have been coming on there in the playoffs. We're going to ratchet it up. I am going on there later this week to break down the NBA playoffs with Chris Vernon. So if you want to hear me on a podcast talk about the NBA playoffs, it's going to happen on the Ringer NBA show and not the BS podcast. Just trust me. Just go over there. It'll be good. I'll have a lot of thoughts. I'll have some gambling tips, the whole thing. Ringer NBA show. Download, subscribe, do the thing. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, we have Joe House quickly to just, it's Tuesday night when we're taping this, and I wanted to go over the MVP one more time with him. He's my sounding board. He's, he goes in the muse cage with me, and we bounce stuff off each other. And then coming up after House, we have Neil Moritz, who was the producer from day one on the Fast and the Furious franchise. He's the only one left, other than I think the costume designer. But uh, we go over the history of the franchise Everything that worked, everything that didn't work, a lot of the stories about uh, behind the scenes. And if you like the movies, I would highly recommend listening to this. If you love the movies, I will never forgive you if you don't listen to this. But Fast Eight's coming out on Friday. And this is a worthy director's commentary on the entire series, even though he's the, uh, the head producer, not the director. But anyway, coming up, Joe House, Neil Moritz, but first, Pearl Jam. All right, I want to call Joe House. It's Tuesday night, East Coast time, and it's like 4.30 on, uh, on the West Coast. Russell Westbrook is not playing tonight, so I don't have to worry about him dropping at 65, 22, and 28 to screw up my uh, MVP decision. I'm still undecided, House. I've still not decided on my MVP. I have a column due this week. I have a ballot due, and I have not decided. All these other media members are coming out with their picks and stuff, and... I I it's I, I want to see more. I almost need like a 95 game season. You were convinced when we talked the last time on the podcast that Harden was the MVP. Have you changed your mind? Uh, I have not. I'm even more convinced now. And in fact, I feel a, a tweet storm brewing. I'm just I have some thoughts I need to get out. I'm not sure the right way 
in addition to speaking with you, which is obviously always a pleasure, I need to get all of my thoughts out on this topic. The basic premise from which I'm coming from on this MVP decision is if you are a person who, who subscribes to what I'll call NBA values, then it is a perversion of NBA values to uh, reward Russell Westbrook with the MVP award for this season. If you vote for Russell Westbrook for MVP, that makes you a hoops pervert. A hoops pervert? And the reason okay. I say that, a hoops pervert, Yeah. the reason I say that is because we have established certain parameters for what it means to be an MVP in this league, and... Russell Westbrook does not reach any of the lofty standards that have been developed. Tried and true measures for assessing outstanding performance. Now, having said all of those things, Russell Westbrook won this season. He made the the regular season great again. He 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 achieved an outstanding level of performance. He is he deserves all of the plaudits and the laudations and every single celebration that people want to so clearly um, heap upon him. He deserves it. He said, I'm going to go kick ass this season, and then he did it. And he showed up for every single game except for this game tonight, which he's certainly entitled to take a break at this point in the season. But here's the thing. I don't know if you saw any of this game in Phoenix. I watched the game in Phoenix. I watched nearly the entire thing. He shot 6 for 25 from the field. And the, the, the perversion that I'm speaking of is the fans in Phoenix booing their own team for denying Westbrook achieving his triple-double. Now, when, when we have that kind of reaction to um, a great player you know, out there competing and a home team, our, our, our values are, have, are, are, are askew. Something is amiss. And that, that confirmed to me, that performance confirmed to me, that while he deserves all the credit in the world, for the wonderful achievements of the regular season, he is not an NBA MVP. LeBron is looks like he's only going to win fifty games. Is that enough? No. Oh, well, well, wait, wait a second. LeBron's a whole different case and a whole different story. And wins is not the measure for for, for LeBron. Well, I just I I, I want to know what your threshold is for wins. Let's start there. What's the oh, lowest okay, amount okay. of wins so, you would accept in a in an MVP season with worthy candidates? 50, 50, 50, for sure. Yeah. I have to have 50 wins to, to, to start the conversation. And yeah, on so, top of that, you tweeted this, this yeah. earlier. How much did the team exceed what it was expected to do? It was expected to do at the beginning of this season. I thought that was a very astute observation you put out there. I was going to give it a million likes. I still may do it on the Twitter about how much greater Houston outperformed their expected win total this season compared to Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City is exactly where they were forecasted to be. Maybe a half game better. Houston's so, like 13 or 14 games better. Right. Houston was 41.5. OKC was 45.5. Now, Vegas is wrong. Every once in a while with over-unders, they were wrong with Minnesota. There were some other ones that they got wrong. The reason I tweeted that out was because there's this perception now that Harden has a better supporting cast when it's actually, I would argue that if you're going to draft the players from both teams, you know, just like, I don't know, snake fashion or whatever, if both teams could start over, I think three of the four first 
three of the four draft picks that go first would be from OKC. I think it would go Adams. Um, all right, let, let's do it. Who's your first pick? You got Russell Westbrook and James Harden are splitting sides. They're playing pickup. Okay. And we're the captains. I'm giving you the first pick. Who do you take? Steven Adams. Okay. I think the second pick is Victor Oladipo, who's been kind of quietly pretty good this season. If you look at his stats and the eye test and everything, I, I think he'd have to be the second pick. Who's the third pick? I'm very interested at some point in talking more about Oladipo and the effect of Russell's usage this season on Oladipo's development and what Oladipo may ultimately become for Oklahoma City. Another topic for another conversation, very interesting to me. I understand Oladipo is the next pick. That makes perfect sense to me. I think I would take, huh, I don't know. This is hard. It's it's probably I'm Patrick Beverly, right? Of anybody, and the reason is because, you know, you're, you're not building anywhere in a draft with Eric Gordon or Anderson. You know, Patrick Beverly is an effective role player. I'm not even sure what the answer is. Right. So now it's like after those first two, now you're in the Patrick Beverly, Eric Gordon, uh, Capella. Um, Lou Williams. Lou Williams. Is, he's probably a little further down. The uh, Enos Cantor for some low post scoring. The point is, like, it's pretty even. And if anything, I would say Adams is by by far the first pick. I mean, that guy's a good center. And Oladipo from a ceiling standpoint, I think is probably higher than anyone on, on Houston, but Houston's team fits hard and better. They made a specific point of going out there and getting the type of guys that, that kind of would mesh with them. Whereas Westbrook's more of a one man show. And even the Taj Gibson trade, they just want to get them rebounders because bring another rebounder defender guy in there. They're, they're kind of following the Oh one Sixers model, which I appreciate. The whole, the whole reason I'm bringing this up is, you know, I think Houston was expected to be a 41-win team. We didn't expect that. I think they were expected to be a fringe playoff team. People were dubious of Mike D'Antoni. Eric Gordon, Ryan Anderson hadn't really been able to uh, to stay healthy the last couple of years. There's no indication that this team was going to be the top a top three team in the West. You and I both loved yeah, we them liked because them. yeah, we you and I both liked them because we thought taking Dwight off Houston was going to really help Harden and Harden see Blue Boy right. dedicated this year. More yeah. shooting, and we like the stuff we read in the preseason about how they're going to unleash him. But you know they're going to exceed what everybody thought by fourteen to fifteen wins, and I, to me that matters. But on the other hand, me too. It also matters that OKC lost Durant and went from fifty-five wins to forty-six or forty-seven wins. That matters too. Westbrook gets credit for that. I even think he gets credit for the fact that their over/under was forty-five and a half because people were so convinced that Westbrook was going to go off this season that they bumped the over-under up, and we still bet it. We bet the OKC totally, over. We both liked totally it. Totally agree. Yeah, totally we were agree. in. It's a real, it's a testament to Russell and yeah. his force of will. I mean, you know, he wins the season. When we think back to the 10 years from now, when you look back at the 2016-2017 season, who won the season? It's going to be Russell. Everybody will say he went on this this. uh this absolute, you know, uh, he was an assassin. It was a, it was a, 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 a terror uh, watch. I mean, I don't, you know, yeah, night, and you know night what? in, night out. And that doesn't happen all the time. But it does happen, and you could go back in it. Like, if we just go back this century, right? I can do this off the top of my head. 2000, Shaq won the season. 
Remember? That was like Phil Jackson showed up. Shaq had his monster year. Yeah. They ended up winning the title. Oh yeah. one, Iverson yeah. won the season. And it was like, oh my God, Iverson, how are they how are they doing this? They make the finals. Oh two, the Sacramento Kings won the season. Yep. Right? Yeah, for sure. Oh three, Duncan won the season and the title. Oh four, nobody really won the season, and then the Pistons kind of just won it late and came on and they won the title. Oh five, the Artes Melee won the season. <laughs> and Shaq Oh no. And oh, no. Sha- and Shaq going to Miami. I voted for Shaq that year. 06, Kobe won the season. Actually, you know what? 05, Nash and the Suns won that season. I, I take that back. Well, Shaq that, that and was, Miami. There, there was, was some Nash's good stuff. MVP, wasn't it? Yeah. They, they, which I'm still not totally on board with. But, yeah, there were good storylines that year. 06, Kobe. Uh, 07, there was nothing. That was the year I wrote the column where I voted for the fans for the MVP because I thought we deserved it because we had to sit through the shittiest season of all time. <laughs> uh, 08, Kobe won the MVP. I still feel like that was the wrong year he won. I thought he should have won in 06. I thought KG or Chris Paul should have won in 08. A lot of people won that season. 09, LeBron. That was the year LeBron mm-hmm. just kicked everyone's ass. Same thing in 2010 and the decision was looming. He kind of won that season. 2011, Derrick Rose versus Miami with Wade and LeBron together. I would say those were the two things that won. 2012, LeBron, unbelievable. Same thing in 13. Durant wins 2014. Curry and the Warriors in 15 and 16. And then this year, Westbrook wins. Now, what's interesting is most of the time the guy who won the season also won the MVP, and that's one of my four categories for trying to pick the MVP. Who won the season? Who did it belong to? Clearly, Westbrook won the season. So why doesn't that make him the MVP? Because we have standards for the MVP. Okay. If you go back through those years, in many of the years, the guy, there's at least four seasons where the, the guy that we think won the season didn't win the MVP. Yeah. Well, and also, the thing I keep coming back to is he didn't really make anyone better on his team. And yet... That's the El Depot point I want, I want to ponder a little bit And more. Adams, too. I, I still feel like there's more with Adams. Adams is like the Westbrook henchman, basically. Like, I, I feel like there's more in there. There's more lurking. There's a better offensive we, player. I just like him. I like his game. I, I wanted to see more, and... I, and you know, like Kevin O'Connor surmised on uh, on the Ringer NBA show today, like that if Westbrook's chance to win, if he wanted to win a title, would be to play off the ball more and, you know, not monopolize it as much. It would make them a little more dangerous and make their offense a little more predictable. The team's down a lot. They always seem to be down 15 or 20. They rally back half the time. And I thought that was an interesting point, too. I don't, if you're trying to win a title, like I wrote a month ago, you you can't win the title with somebody who has the ball this much trying to do this much. But if you're trying to average a triple-double for the season or win the MVP with individual stats, it's the move. And that's obviously what he decided. And, and we've observed this before. I give OKC a lot of credit. They recognized that this was a transition year, and they did an unprecedented thing. Like, everybody in that organization had to be all in with the idea of, of this usage rate with, with Westbrook. Right. An unprecedented amount of time he has the ball, possesses the ball, you you know, takes shots and gives out assists. That's cool. I totally support that. It made the regular season fantastic. It was absolutely the best thing 
for the franchise to do in this transition season. It made them made such a great mark, such a great response to KD leaving. Um, and it was a, a wonderful story to watch all year long. And goodness gracious, he averaged a triple-double. It was effing unbelievable. But he ain't the MVP. So your MVP is still Harden. Yes. Yes. All the efficiency numbers favor Harden. The wins favor Harden. His it, teammates being better favor Harden. Does it bother you? Know, Harden um, validated D'Antoni. He validated Maury. Does it bother you that the players seem to think that Westbrook's the MVP? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Not one bit. I don't trust the players' judgment on anything. All right. Have you, you seen their Instagram? You know whose judgment I do trust? Yours with food. And, oh. and Blue Apron, if you stopped wasting money on expensive takeout, which is a big ask for you, but if you did and you signed up with Blue Apron for less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers easy-to-follow seasonal recipes along with pre-proportioned ingredients right to your door. They have the highest standards. Mm. They build a community of home chefs that has no rival. No more overspending at restaurants or high-end grocery stores with Blue Apron. You can prepare delicious, memorable meals yourself in under 40 minutes. Here's some of the some of the meals available in uh, April. This, is, this a- is my favorite part. I know. That's why I saved meal. this for you. I knew, I knew you would yeah, love this. my favorite part. Here are the April meals, house. Spinach and fresh mozzarella pizza with olives, bell peppers, and ricotta salada. Oh, oh, healthy. Healthy spring pizza. Sweet and sour salmon with bok choy, carrot, and ginger fried rice. I know you would eat that. I mean, I, absolutely. I'm getting in swim shoot. Swim, swim suit shape. <laughs> Parmesan crusted chicken with creamy fettuccine and roasted broccoli. Oh, come on. Night, night. And baby broccoli and fontina paninis with hard-boiled egg and mm. arugula salad. Also very healthy. Very healthy Blue Apron this month. Like Great, it. great April menu. Uh, right now you can get your first three Blue Apron meals for free with free shipping if you go to blueapron.com slash BS. They should name a meal after your house. They should let you, they should let you plan one of the four meals in May because nobody loves hearing I'm- what the meals are more than Joe House. <laughs> Come on, Blue Apron. I would gladly participate in that. What would be your what would what Blue Apron meal would you suggest for them? What would be your dream Blue Apron meal? Wow, might (laughs) you know this is an old oldie but a goodie. Chicken parm, you taste so good. All right, so House wants some sort of chicken parm deal (laughs) for men. Get on that Blue Apron, Uh, and you can get on Blue Apron right now. Go to blueapron.com/bs. Get your first three Blue Apron meals for free with free shipping. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. All right, back to the MVP. I'm writing LeBron off. I think he's going to be in my four spot. That's the only thing I know for sure right now. I do not like how the Cavs ended the season. And uh, back-to-back losses to the Hawks. It's just horrible. Make me furious. How the furious. F? How the F does a team with LeBron and Kyrie only win 50 games? How does that happen? Now, I, I, I can't get past they gave up 44 points in the fourth quarter to the Hawks on, on Sunday night. 44 points in the fourth quarter. I can't get over that. So you're, you're with me with LeBron in the four spot? Yeah, you can't put him any higher than that. Yeah. It, it would have been better for him to have not played these last 10 games than to play and, and, and you know, have the Cavs with this extraordinarily spotty effort it's just an effort thing it seems with them i mean i'm i'm starting to think about curry in the fourth spot i won't do it but i did have the thought i did i did sneak a sneak a peek at curry yeah that team's gonna win like 67 games 
LeBron's first 45, 50 games. I know, I know. I know. Well, let's agree on this. If Westbrook doesn't win, it's the most fun storyline for next season. It's the only way we could make him angrier and fill him with even more hate and and just just the uh, just the intensity and and relentlessness. I think is to deny him the MVP. Let's see if he can go to high. Let's see if he can do thirty five, fifteen, and fifteen every game. I'm on board. Let's see if his usage rate can get to fifty percent. Let's deny Russell Westbrook the MVP. It's better for basketball. I, I think if we give him the MVP, he, he it, it makes him soft. He's never the same. He's never as angry. He feels like he proved what he needed to prove. The whole thing. Now I don't know. I, I'm I'm going to think about it the next 24 hours. And uh, man, that that Sunday really shook me. I, I on Sunday I decided I was going with Harden, and then that Denver game shook me. And I was like, man, am I really going to? Am I going to hate myself in 10 years because I didn't vote for Westbrook? That's where yeah, I Yeah, but think about you. You made this point earlier, and this is the thing that really, um, to me, hampers the case. They, they've been making massive comebacks against crappy teams all season long. Like yeah. a lot of those, you know, game tying threes that he's made or the push at the end, he, he, he scored 13 points uh, with no point, no response at all out of Denver. Now, part of the thing for OKC, they deserve credit. Great team defense all season long, and uh, notwithstanding the fact that Russell's own individual defensive stats have not been great, great team defense for OKC. Did you see that stat? Factors in. 538 had a stat about it was something like amount of times he ran out on somebody, and it was it was like the lowest in the league for a contested times he's contested a shot. It was like three point eight a game, or something. It was basically like uh, it was basically where I was in my last two years playing pickup basketball. Was I was Russell Westbrook contending shot contesting shots? That wasn't good. But he he's expending so much energy on the offensive end. I mean, he, you know, he's not superhuman. But the thing about that, that Denver game, that comeback, the same was true of, of Phoenix. They were out of that game. I mean, they just you know, yeah, they're not competitive against against you know, um, crappy teams. They don't have a very good record against good teams. Too often not competitive against crappy teams. Is the way yeah, I would, say. I would argue if they end up at 46 and 36, to me that's a disappointment. I thought, I bet on them to win the division. There, I I looked at uh, the wagers that we may or may not have made, and I bet on them plus 285 to win the division. I thought they were the best team in that division. Utah's going to beat them by four games. Not positive yeah. that makes sense to me either. They, like, why? How are they not? How could they not get to fifty wins with Westbrook's MVP season? Doesn't make sense. Nobody got cancer got hurt for twenty games, but other than that, you know, they add Taj during the middle of the season. They add McDermott, who is a better outside shooter than really anybody they had. It doesn't really make sense to me. I thought they could have been a tiny bit better. I don't know if the MVP should be making me say to myself, "Why wasn't that team better?" You know. Whereas Houston, I'm like, that team won. The Houston won in their mid-50s, and it's like, wow, that's pretty good. That's Mike D'Antoni. Anyway, all right, House. Uh, I'll let you know. I'll text you. I'll let you know what I decide. Oh, quickly on the the Masters, because I know you you broke down all of it on Shack House. But we should point out that you uh, recommended wagers. You you recommended a few different golfers, but your big bets – Two of them were uh, Sergio Garcia and Justin Rose, who do it on the last round. So I was proud of you. That was great. Yeah. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. You know, I, I do give out recommendations for a whole number of, of golfers in different um, 
kinds of, of bets in different increments. Right. But that's because it's effing golf. I mean, it's impossible to pick the winner. You have to, like, have a feel for a few different guys. And then you, know, you never know which guy is in a fight with his girlfriend and which guy had a, had a bad uh, zucchini salad the night before. I mean, I can't factor all that stuff in. Or who I'm fell down the stairs? Guys that are in form and what about who fell down the guys? stairs? Well, that's, fortunately, I did not have any. I hadn't made any wagers by the by the time that that occurred. I mean, you know, that was a very, a very uh, the old fall down the stairs. Hmm. That, that that was that's a conspiracy theorist are out. I mean, I'm not perpetuating any of these conspiracies. I'm not responsible it's a, it's, for it. it. Made me blanch. This was very curious that Jimmy Walker and Dustin Johnson were paired together. And then they didn't end up playing together. That's the only thing I'm going to say about that. Anyway, uh, yeah. that was great, though. Great Masters. I really enjoyed watching it on my crappy Wi-Fi feed on, on my iPad as I watched my daughter play soccer. And it kept cutting in and out. And I finally followed it on Twitter. But I did watch it. I watched the replay. And uh, what's just that? All right, we got to go. But what's your favorite Masters hole? Because I have, I have a whole theory about this. My favorite Masters hole? Yeah. Your favorite Masters it's, hole. It's 15. Oh, that's 15 mine too. Is my favorite Masters hole. Because I like, <laughs> of I like, course. well, I like 15 because it also leads to 16. So it's like I'm getting like, yeah. I'm getting seconds right away. You know, I'm getting like all the drama of 15, but then right away the approach shot on 16. It's just a great, it's a great 15 minutes. It's the best. Masters it, 15 and it, 16 is the best. Totally agree. Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't disagree. Uh, one one bit. It really sets the stage for how the, that that you know, out of all the groups coming through in those last six groups, the performance on fifteen and sixteen distinguishes who's going to you know follow through or not. My man Thomas Peters, uh, a rookie this year that I also um, put out there, nice six to one odds as top debutant. He came through. Mm. He had birdied twelve through fifteen and then bogeyed sixteen, and that derailed him. You know, he was really making a charge there. Um, but those those are the holes that always, you know, 15, 16 set the stage. Charles Schwartzel, however many years ago, five or six years ago, birdied in from 15, four straight birdies. He won the Masters that way. So that's why 15, is, 15 and 16 are so great. You are absolutely right. All right, nice work. Listen to the Shack House pod. Download, subscribe. House. House. I'll let you know what I did. Thank you. All right, fingers crossed. Make the right decision. Don't be a pervert. <laughs> Before we get to the Fast and Furious stuff, I want to talk about Zip Recruiter, whether it's a first or seventh round pick drafting the right player. is the key to success. That big wide receiver, the speedy edge rusher that can take your team to new heights. The same goes for your business or department. Finding the right talent makes all the difference when you need to hire. Where do you go to scout talent? You can't find top talent by posting your job to just one site. You got to post your jobs to all the top job sites. And now you can with ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, instantly distribute your job to 200 plus job boards across the web, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with one click. ZipRecruiter identifies potential candidates, notifies them about your job in a matter of minutes. No more countless hours searching. ZipRecruiter does the searching for you. You can select, screen, and rate candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy to use dashboard. Find the right fit fast. Don't get stuck without the right lineup. Discover today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes nationwide. And right now, my listeners can kick off their hiring on ZipRecruiter for free. Oh, yeah, for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. 
Try it for free today. ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. And now the fast and the furious. All right. I'm here with Neil Moritz. Yes, sir. I wanted to say Moritz, but it's Moritz. Like St. Moritz. St. Moritz. Yeah. Uh, the producer of my favorite franchise of all time. Mine too. I want to I want to go through your career and how you got there, but I want to start with with the movie. Fast One. Yes, sir. 2001? 2001. I think I had just started ESPN. I went to see it. I remember where I saw it. It was in Revere. I was living in Charleston at the time. And you had to get on the highway to drive back to my house. And I got on the highway and I drove like 130 miles an hour right. and was just weaving between cars. I'm sure you get that a lot. Well, actually, the, the first time we ever showed that movie was out in Chatsworth in California at the same theater. We've done the kind of the test screenings for every one of these movies. Yeah. And, you know, when, I, when, when we made this movie, we thought we were making like this really cool kind of B-genre kind of street culture uh, uh, movie. And we made this movie and it was really cool. And I thought it was going to be a really cool movie. But when we showed it that first time and I walked out into the parking lot after the movie's over and I saw kids in their cars just doing donuts and ripping around in their cars and kids in groups talking and screaming and yelling. And that's when I knew we had something uh, special. So I, I rebelled against it a tiny bit the first time I saw it because I love Point Break. One of my favorite movies. And I movies. was like, this is Point Break with cars. Like this is, I, yep. I, what? they could have just made Point Break too as much as I enjoyed it. And then the more I thought about it over the next couple of months, I was like, Point Break with Cars, pretty good. And then it started coming on cable, and that's when I was in. Yeah, well, to me, it's, you know, Point Break meets Godfather in a way. Uh, yeah. In, in terms family. of terms of the family aspect and the themes of that, but Point Break, and those are, uh, if somebody, you know, when I speak at a lot of, like, uh, university film school type things, and people ask me what my favorite movie is, it's Godfather 1 and 2, and kind of that combined with Point Break, which is another th- movie that I loved, like, that's where I would hopefully have Fast and Furious live. The sweet spot. So how did the movie get made? What happens? Um, I Whose was, idea is it, and what's the process? Th- there, was, there was an article... Uh, about the street racing culture in uh, in New York City. And I was making another movie at the time when we saw this article. And um, I thought it could be a great uh, backdrop for a film. I love movies about lifestyles and about subcultures. Yeah. And I thought this fit perfectly within that. Now, then we had to obviously find a story that could fit within that uh, 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 culture and when we came up with the idea of an undercover cop going into this world that was kind of the driving engine between this and we had a, a couple of scripts written and uh, uh, we just thought there could possibly be a movie here uh, I had been working with Paul Walker in another movie uh, Skulls I gave him the script Rob Cohen who I had been make had made Rat Pack with and Skulls with gave him the script uh, the two of them liked the idea, Paul being a car head. Um, and then we had to look for Dom Toretto. And the studio said, if you can get Timothy Olipant, Olifant to play that role, we will green light the movie. To play Dom Toretto? Play Dom Toretto. So and you had Paul Walker. You never thought about possibly going for Keanu? No. Okay. But we gave... So you say it was like a money ball decision with Paul Walker. He's still on his way up. He was on his way up. Yeah, but yeah. I but I, I loved him. I had made a couple of films with him. I felt like he had the, that potential. He had the, obviously, the great American looks. Was this was, before Varsity Blues or after? Uh, this was... This was after, right? Was it after or before? I cannot I think remember Varsity Blues now. is 99. Because I had made Skulls with him 
and I knew him prior to that, but I can't, I, it might've been after, I'm not sure. Yeah. And then, um, so luckiest, luckiest thing that ever happened to us is that Tim Oliphant turned us down. Wow, remember, and he's a good actor. He's a great actor. Yeah. In fact, I, I'm curious to see what that version of that movie would have been. It's a and, good what if. And then when he turns down, I said to the studio, you know, there was this guy I'd seen in this movie. Um, I think he'd be great. What movie was it? Um, was it was it the original Pitch Black at the time, I think. Yeah. And uh, I went and I met him at Kate Manolini's. And he had, he he wasn't a star yet. But the great thing about Vin is he always believed he was a star. Right, his rational and, confidence. And I was like, I'm going in there kind of to think that he's going to be coming to me to want the role, and I'm the one there now having to convince him to do the role. And lucky for both of us that that happened, and then we started to make the movie. So who was plan C then? I, I don't think that we would have ever made the movie if he did not. Oh, wow. I don't, I don't know. That's a terrible scenario. Well, I don't when even I like look, talking about that. When I look back, I, I don't know who else could have played the role. And uh, we went off and made that movie and this little movie. Now, 17 years later, I'm sitting here on number eight. The interesting thing is somebody asked me the other day, um, okay, when I first started in this movie, I wasn't married. Uh, didn't have kids, obviously. And now I've got a 16-year uh, anniversary coming up. And... Uh, 14 year old and 11 year old so when i look at these movies i not only look at kind of the fact that we have eight movies but i look at it as each one of these is an incredible life experience along the way not only with my family on the movie side but on my personal was uh, the first one a hit the first one was a huge hit came huge out, hit okay. i think the first one came out on the first weekend at the time maybe did 35 or 38 million dollars i can't remember the exact number did the studio know it was going to be hit um, I think people thought that there was something there, but nobody envisioned that it could go on to do that, that kind of business. It was, I think, and that was at the point, I think where the studio was going through a little bit of a lull and this was kind of one of the bright spots. We've been lucky enough that, you know, studios have cycles, um, of good, bad. Most of the time, luckily universal has been on a great role for a long time now, but there was a point in time where we were always kind of the bright shining star for the studio when they, you know, weren't having that much success but you don't have the guys locked up for a sequel you don't have both of them uh, on that one for fast two no for fast Vin's two no. not in fast two nope, we did not have them in fact i went off we couldn't make a deal with vin um, Vin's, oh, I'm not doing it. and and so we ultimately i went with him and made triple x the first one and so uh, you almost like cheated on the fast franchise well, with triple x it's weird because i would i would say that some people thought that the first triple X was the sequel to fast and furious. I'm not uh, one of those people. Okay. Well, some people did. And, uh, yes. So we were doing that and then Paul wanted to do it. And then we brought in Tyrese. And that, that was also a success. That was definitely a success. It, it and was, that was now kind of underrated. I feel uh, like well, I don't fast too. I, I feel is on the underrated. I side. don't know if it was as creative a success as some of the other ones yeah. have been, but it was definitely a financial uh, success and it strayed a little bit of what Fast and Furious was, but it was still a movie that I really enjoyed making and I still enjoy watching today. I think it was the emergence of Tyrese, and I think that relationship between Tyrese and Paul Walker was really good, and I loved the, the locale of that movie, shooting in Miami. I thought it had a really great look, and then I, that's where we introduced, I guess, Ludacris as well. So there's a lot of pieces from that movie that have carried right. forward. So then Fast 3... Fast 3 was like, God, what are we going to do here? It was almost like, are we going to go make a direct-to-DVD 
uh, movie, or oh, are we so going to try it was to over at this point? We we kind of were like, you know, what's the impetus for us to to be able to continue, and uh, what can make it. Uh, fresh and what can we do? And Paul Walker's out. He's like, I'm not in. Yeah, I can't remember the, exactly why that went down at this time, um, but we felt like we, we, that we needed to make a cheaper version of the movie. Um, we we couldn't keep the budget couldn't keep going up at that point, so we went off to make the Tokyo Drift version. And when we made that, we felt like we had something really cool, and then we were able to convince Vin to come back and do the cameo at the end of three that then which catapult the franchise in a whole dr- different direction back to where we were and allowed us to now go on this kind of stratospheric rise that we've had from four through eight. So you waited out Vin a little bit because there was a point there where it seemed like Vin was going to be this a plus list action star. I don't know if we waited him out per se that, you know, that was something that was going on between himself and the studio. I always felt that, that Vin really was kind of the lifeblood of, of what fast and furious was. And I really did feel like if we were going to continue, we needed to have in, in the movie and we were lucky enough to convince him why it was good for us and why it was good for him and how we could continue on. If he, if he came back. So did you know at the, you knew in the fast three cameo that he's coming back for fast four? Well, the idea was come back, come back. We really want you back. Let's see how it goes with the anticipation of going to do a fourth based on that. And what was the reception for fast three? Fast 3 was actually, it's funny, it's either people's favorite or least favorite. Favorite? Who are some, those people? Some people love Tokyo Drift. What? Yep, they do. It's it's really, what I find interesting is everybody has a different favorite. I mean, I have different favorites for different uh, uh, reasons. I actually like parts of all the different movies for uh, for different reasons. And um, But in terms of Tokyo Drift, there are a lot of people that really like that movie. It was a great title. Didn't it have a? It had a video game element that kind of carried it on, right? Was there a video game, or there was some I, sort of? We did some kind of mobile video game, kind yeah, of attached yeah. along with I just it. I feel like it's the names around. It's yeah, not cable. A lot and then too. also, I think we did like an arcade game that was yeah, called Tokyo that, that's Drift. That's what it was. Yeah, it was um, the arcade game. Um, but yeah, what's funny is is that you know when you're in these foreign countries, which I'm in a lot of time for yeah. doing press for the movies or actually for the making of the movies, and you turn on the channels. There is almost at no time where you will turn on some channel where you won't see some Fast and Furious movie. It's really interesting. It transcends all languages. When we were in China, when we were in uh, Cuba shooting, um, you know they can't they couldn't legally license our movies. They don't pay us to, to to air the movies there. But on their fifty channels that they have there, there was Fast and Furious on at all times. Right. So Fast and Fur Fast Four, which was spectacular. What year was that? Two thousand eight, uh, maybe. 2008 or 2009 and that's when you knew like all right we now have a chance to turn this into a franchise yeah we kind of just felt like it kept building and my feeling was is that the only way to be able to keep going with fast and furious was to give the audience enough of what they liked in previous films but to give them something new each time out, whether it was the addition of a cast, whether it was a plot twist, whether it was the tag we'd have on a movie that would launch us into the next one, where we find out Michelle Rodriguez is alive, or whatever whatever it is that there was, we always needed something that was going to be different in the next film. We couldn't just do a rehash each time. I think that the audience knows they're going to come and they're going to see great cars. They're going to see the characters that they love. They know they're going to get to see uh, uh, great action sequences that, you know, 
we try and top each other each time. And um, but they're, I think they also feel like they're getting something new each time. And, and you I'm, lucked out. Tokyo, Justin Lin directed Tokyo Justin Just, right? Lin directed. Who's excellent. Th- then three, he does four and five. Four, five, six. And now he's directing right now for me the pilot for the television show SWAT based on the movie I did based on the television show. Wait, what's... what's we're, we're doing SWAT uh, TV show oh, for NBC. That was one of my first favorite shows. Oh, mine too. And that's why I made the, mo- maybe, I made the movie. Maybe, mainly because of the theme song. Well, I love the theme song. Yeah. Barry Devorzen did the theme song. And uh, um, so what's interesting is I'm working with Justin on that. Yeah. I'm working with James Wan, who did number seven on something else. And then I'm sure Gary Gray and I will do another project down the line. <laughs> uh, so Fast Four happens. And now all of a sudden it becomes clear this is like the Bond franchise for this generation that you could just keep cranking these out. But you have to you have to keep adding stuff. Yeah, so when Fast Five, the big addition was obviously The Rock. Fast Five is my favorite, just yeah, for the record. I, I, I have, it's the most satisfying start-to-finish experience. Well, I, I think the sequence of dragging that vault the Brazil, through the streets. The Brazil's amazing. Um, yeah. the, and I, I mean, I, I'll never forget standing on the streets of Puerto Rico where we shot most of that, that action sequence and standing there, and I'm like, they're actually letting us do this. Right. They're letting us. I mean, this wasn't like CGI fake. This was us dragging a vault behind these cars going 80, 90 miles an hour, wrecking hundreds of cars. Yeah. It was amazing. Was that the first fast moment that you were like, wow, this is too ambitious? Or was there one from Fast Four? I'm trying to remember. You know, Because that was the first one for me where I remember being in the theater. Like, how did, they, how did they do this? I don't understand. We've always pushed ourselves to go as far as we can go and to try and do it as real and practical as possible. Like CGI is kind of our enemy. Like we only really will go to CGI if we can't do it. If you're safely. jumping through two buildings in well, Dubai. Yeah. Well, it was funny though in the two buildings in Dubai, we actually jumped the cars, but we built on a stage in Atlanta. We built coming out of one building and going into another building. And then we, then superimpose those on these two how- towers that existed in Dubai, you know. But we actually did that jump. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. It was in the convention center in Atlanta where we took over that whole huge convention center and built the two things and uh, and jumped it. And who would have thought that wasn't even one of the top three most unrealistic moments in the series? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. We've had a we've had a, we've had a lot of them. We have, we've I think we have. I still the, think landing the cars from the planes on parachutes right onto the mountain at full speed is can't be topped. Okay. Well, that. But to me, actually, the longest runway in the world is probably the one for me. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody <laughs> realized that until they saw the movie a second time. I don't think there was well, like. Wait some, a second, how long is this runway? Guy, some guy did like some thesis. I remember. On it. Yeah, it was amazing. It was like twenty nine miles or something yeah i'm always so impressed by our fans who go off and do these things and do the math for us i i i love it you know it's it's just so rewarding to see that because honestly i'm a fan i'm yeah. a fan i'm a fan of the movies and a fan of movies all all together but when on the end of seven when we for the first time screening that movie out at that same theater in Chatsworth and the movie ended and it was probably the most nerve-wracking night of my life because here we did this and all we wanted to do was honor who Paul was and his legacy and the last thing in the world I wanted to do was let him or the audience down and I'm standing there after the screening had ended and the screening went incredible but I'm standing in the lobby waiting for the fans to fill out the, 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 the cards and for us to get our score and to see how we did and I'm standing there in the corner and these four young kids come up to me, uh, you know, 17, 18 year old kids. And they come up to me and say, thank you so much. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, 
you don't understand like we needed that to get through our grieving of Paul and I was like wow. wow I thought we were doing that for us I didn't it didn't come it didn't come to me that we were actually doing it for the uh, the fans as well. And the, the thing is, is something that I can never live down is in, in Fast and Furious 1, I was the guy in the red Ferrari on PCH who goes, they, when Paul Walker says, uh, Ferrari, how much did that cost? And I say, uh, more than you can afford, pal, Ferrari. That's how those kids recognize me a lot of times from that one. So that was you? That was me, unfortunately. Uh, yes, and wow. I, I vowed that I would never go on screen again after that. Uh, but... Um, Rob Cohen, the director at the time, convinced me to do it. And then now when I won't do it for other directors, they're like, well, you're not, we're not your favorite anymore. And I was just like, no, I'm just a bad actor. I don't want to ruin your, I don't want to ruin your scene too. Right. Um, but that was the most rewarding, uh, part of making these movies. I saw, I saw that one with, we still had Grantland at that point. I was still there and we went, they had that big theater in LA live. So I went with, uh, right. I think Rafe Bartholomew and Marco Santi and one other person. Was it, a, was, was it a pack it was crowd? It was like an afternoon pack crowd and that ending. We didn't we didn't know because I, I always try to avoid like reading about it. I didn't know how you're gonna handle it, yeah. but and I was really dubious of of how it was gonna be handled. And then it goes and the whole thing and it was like one of those we're all trying not to we're, we're all choked right. up. We're like trying not to make eye contact with each other. And then we all just started laughing. We were like, I can't it was watch, like a real male bonding moment. Uh, I can't watch the, I, I cannot watch the movie anymore because I know that if I watched it right now, I would, I would cry with it because he was, Paul was the greatest um, guy I'd ever met. He was a real guys guy. He was, he was, he, he girls loved him. Guys loved him. He was just, he was so full of life. He really was um, a surfer outdoorsman, um, more than an actor, and he, even though he was really good at what he did, he was just the greatest guy in the world. And honestly, when that happened, when the, his passing happened, that accident happened, we were just like, we're not going to finish the movie. We were. I, How I, much had you done at that point? We'd done over half of the movie. Yeah. And we were just like, we just we can't finish the movie. We just can't do it. And kind of Universal said, take some time, think about it, see what you guys want to do, and we just. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know what we could do or what we should do. And then uh, when the what did that like? What did did you get input from the cast and stuff? Yeah, we all sat there and we all talked, and you know, we spent a lot of time together. Whether it was at the, we had a little uh, ceremony at the accident site, or whether it was at the funeral where I had to where I spoke. I didn't have to speak. I was honored to speak, and it was maybe the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. In fact, I was sitting there about to go up at the funeral to uh, give my speech. And I was just like, I, I said to my wife, I said, I don't think I can do it here. Will you take my speech and go do it for me? And she says, no, you, you need to do it. And it was, it was the most cathartic thing for me ever. I'm glad I did it because I would never uh, uh, forgive myself if I didn't do it. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't until Chris Morgan came up with that idea at the end of the road splitting um, that we knew we had a way, a path to the end of this movie. And then we had to then work our way backwards and figure out with the footage that we already had existing and the special effects things that we were able to do, how we could make that story um, work. But I look back at it and that scene in combination with that song, I thought was the perfect um, yeah, how'd you get the song? Did you that, know you had the song, no, or did that, you tell that, him to do it, or no, how? No, that work? song was written for the movie. We had it. We have like these songwriting camps, kind of things, where we show a lot of filmmakers. I mean, songwriters, the movie or particular scenes, and we said, "Here's the scene. This is what we're looking for. Come back with it." And I remember when I first heard that first 
uh, melody that Charlie uh, Puth uh, wrote um, that we knew we had something incredible. Yeah. And, you know, there was talk about should we is Charlie Pruth going to be the artist or are we going to replace him with somebody else? And I'm so glad that we went with his soulful version of it with Wiz Khalifa on top. And I just think it's, you know, the perfect combination of music and film. Um, Some people say to me, are you disappointed that you never guys get honored, you know, awards? And I said, the only thing that only word that I ever thought that we got bypassed for that we should have really got was that in the Academy Awards that that song, the best song wasn't yeah. nominated and should have I totally won for, agree. It was, there was no song more fitting to a movie to the emotion or the picture than that song in the history of cinema as far as I'm concerned. I think it's one of the best endings ever. It's one of the best song and scene combinations. And you're right, like there's a bias against super successful movies and comedies with the Oscars, but that's yeah. a good example of like what song meant more to a movie than that song. I can't even imagine. I think that Plus I, it was, it was so important that that if you guys had fucked that up, the whole franchise is dead and every, nobody forgives you for it. And then it affects how people regard the other movies. Yeah, it, too. Was, it was so the nice. stakes were so high for it. It was so nice. We had the premiere Saturday night at radio city music hall in front of 5,000 screaming fans. And it was just an incredible, uh, it was like a barnstorm. I mean, people were going crazy, and it was so nice. I didn't know till that day that Paul Walker's uh, mother and daughter would be at the premiere, and uh, you know, I found out that day, and that made me kind of nervous. And I think the way we've handled that in number eight mm. is as special as what we've done. And I mean, different but special. And they were so pleased and so proud of the fact that that's how we've done it. And we've really tried to, you know, keep the family involved with us. They'll. Um, they'll always be involved in in the franchise. So working backwards in that one, you had all this footage of Paul Walker, but then you had all these other scenes he had to be in, and 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 we re- and we wrote a lot of new. You material. had to rewrite some stuff, and because we we were what we what we were lucky is we had the tinge of a, a fact that Paul and Jordana were getting tired of this life. Or, you know, they have kids. Yeah. And so we had just the beginnings of that. And we thought that that would be a great through line for their characters. The question was, how did we, how were we able to do scenes along the way till the end that we didn't have, we hadn't shot? And obviously Paul couldn't shoot. How could we do that with existing footage or voice or visual effects or the brothers or how could we do it? And so he used be, his brothers for some of the filling stuff, right? We didn't. We didn't. We never used their faces. Right. But we, used their, we used their. their we, we were like, who's going to be the closest to him in terms of manners? Yeah. And we used them for that in combination with uh, digital capture that we already had of Paul, and in terms of with uh, uh, visual effects that was created. I thought for you the guys. Movie. You guys were pretty tight-lipped about how you did it we it was want, the one thing like during the movie like I, wanna, I remember googling it like yeah, how'd they do this there we was didn't nothing wanna, we didn't want to ruin you know the experience for the people you know what was funny is when we showed the movie and I remember at one point we asked the question uh, you know can anybody tell which is Paul which not and the, the scenes that people picked that they didn't think were Paul were really Paul you know so wow. we, I think that Weta in New Zealand uh, did a fantastic job of doing that. I actually went to New Zealand, like to get, just give this motivational speech to the guys where they're working 24 hours a day to get this that finished in time, and just let them know how important Paul was to us, and that we needed it. That's how good we needed it to be. It needed- so, did you, you? Somebody tells you this idea, like, yeah, we think we can do screen capture. Did you actually think it was going to work? 
You know, I really believe these guys because they're the best in the business. There had to have been a small shred of doubt, like, oh, well, what was, if they're wrong? And there was, a, we there, no was there was a huge shred of doubt, and honestly, there was no turning back. Once we started, there was no turning back, and we didn't get the final shots till you know weeks from the time the movie was coming out. And is this like millions of dollars? How expensive? Very expensive. Is it? It's it was breaking new ground. Right. See, I, I'm fascinated by this because it feels like you stumbled on something that. In a lot of ways, this is where movies could go. Like, what if what if we made Godfather four and you had Marlon Brando in it? Yeah, like, I think you could do it. In, I think you can do it in limited amounts and get away with it from the audience. We were lucky that we never had two scenes in a row where it wasn't the real Paul Walker. Right. Okay. So let's say we had the real Paul Walker, and then we had the special effect version of Paul Walker. And if people start to say, is that the, well, the next scene is the real Paul Walker. So now all of a sudden it gets discounted. So we got lucky. Honestly, he was smiling down on us and made it all work. I don't know if we could do it again. And his family was cool with everything. We went, we were, we walked him through everything. You know, they, they knew how special he was to us and how special the franchise was to him. And they really encouraged us, uh, encouraged us to finish. Quick break to talk about baseball. My fantasy season is already over because Byron Buxton killed it. But that doesn't mean that I'm still not going to watch baseball all year. The new season's underway. The Ringer Podcast Network has baseball fans covered with the Ringer MLB show playing for free on the TuneIn app for the month of April. Download the TuneIn app for free. And you can listen to Ben Lindbergh and Michael Bauman, my friends, break down baseball's biggest stories throughout the opening month of the baseball season. Maybe they'll talk about how Byron Buxton murdered my team. As a bonus for Ringer listeners, the Ringer Podcast Network has partnered with TuneIn to give baseball fans a free 60-day trial of TuneIn Premium to listen to every live home call from every MLB game around the league. Catch the Ringer MLB show only on TuneIn for the entire month for free. And when you upgrade to TuneIn Premium, you also get live MLB games. Just go to TuneIn.com slash Ringer and subscribe. Download the TuneIn app for free. Start listening today. Tune in your everything audio app. Back to Neil Moritz. How did you convince The Rock to be in Fast Five? Because you could argue he was the biggest star in that movie and he didn't have um, the biggest part. Well, I had worked with him on a movie I did called The Gridiron Gang, which was yeah. about this prison camp you know, based on a true story documentary that I'd seen. So I had a good relationship with him. And um, I have to give his, his agent credit. His agent came to us at the time and said, I really want to get Rock in this. And we're like, really? And we went to Rock and it all worked out. And, uh, you know, so he started in five, six, seven and eight. And, you know, we hope to do many others with him. I think. Did you have to add five million a movie for in the budget for Body Butter and stuff like that? Um, to get no, his... he brings his own. He brings, he brings it out. That, that was included in the price. That was, that was included in the price. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he's the hardest working guy I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, this guy doesn't stop. He's going to be the president of the United States someday. I, I would vote for him. That maybe is that maybe that's Fast Twelve. Maybe. <laughs> no, every, everybody keeps president. Saying, Rock. I, I don't know. If there's this rumor out there right now that the next Fast is going to space, and I'm like, where is this coming from? And space. Like, yeah, and like five different. Uh, reporters have asked me about this and I go I don't know where this is coming from but no we're not going to space well what, what other places are left uh, there's a lot of places I want to see I've got to Aren't travel you in the like world. Antarctica this time or something there's some well this time we don't tell not, me too much this but time it we looks wintry we shot in Iceland okay we Iceland Cu- we shot in Cuba we shot in LA we shot in New York we shot in Cleveland and we shot in Atlanta Cleveland yes 
because we needed a place where we could wreck a lot of cars in a very what a, urban what a setting. Stretch for Cleveland. They get they make the World Series. The Cavs win. I was there. Republican dr- convention. Fast I was, Furious. I was right there during the uh, basketball playoffs, and I actually got to go see LeBron play. It was worth it. That's why we went, so I can go see LeBron play. What what are the 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 rock and Vin Diesel stuff? I never know what to believe and not. I believe. mean, honestly, I I kind of just I had to ask. I know uh, you it's can uncomfortable. Ask. I I can't count it up to like you know every family has a little tiff once in a while, but there's it's all good. It's all fine. It's no big deal. I mean, honestly, you know, the, the, Tommy, you believe that? I believe it. Okay, Tom, I mean, uh, they. They have different styles of working, and but they're both huge stars, and they both uh, uh, bring a lot to the the franchise. And um, this is a great answer. This is like hearing. And I wish I, I wish I could talk about. I LeBron wish I could have more of them. When they fought in Fast Five, nobody wins the fight. It's very carefully. It's like a Larry, they go to the scorecards. Harold Letterman just scores at nine, ten. He doesn't yes. even give everyone a template yes. round. Yes. Was there a lot of thought put into that to make sure nobody got the upper hand? Um, I think that we were really determined that it was going to be the most equal fight of all time. Yeah. And I we, think it was. We want we wanted it to be like you were in that room with the two of them beating the shit out of each other, and uh, I think we accomplished that. What about Ronda Rousey versus uh, Michelle Rodriguez? Um, that was in uh, that was in seven. That was in seven in Dubai, and you know uh, Ronda hit her pretty good. Uh, and Ooh. but the thing is, Michelle can fight now. She yeah. can't fight like Ronda uh, in real life, but she can fight. And so that was a good battle. So there was an accidental hit. Um, they you know they just they went at it pretty good. They were like it wasn't tame. Like they were going for it. Yeah. Um, and then there was the Gina Carano. Uh, Michelle won in six. I've never liked subway. her after she turned on everyone. Yeah, that was yeah. pretty bad. That was, yeah. but that was a good reveal at the time. It was people, good. People did not see that coming. Nah, I've never forgiven. And her. there's a couple. There's a couple twists in number eight that people definitely do not see coming. Yeah. And it wasn't. You know, after seven. After seven, we were really like we could have just stopped. I mean, honestly, there was a oh, lot of God. conversation. How dare about, you? There was a lot of conversation about stopping. That's honestly. ridiculous. I know, but you know, it felt like a fitting place, and we were determined that we weren't going to do it unless we could come up with an idea that was really um, worthy of it. And I think when Chris Rorgan, the writer, came up with the idea that Dom goes bad and turns against the team, that that like that put, turned the light bulb on for me, and I was like, okay, now I can see how we can keep going. I was saying in the Ringer office a few months ago that. You know, you get season tickets for sports franchises. And some movie franchises had that, too. You know, like a new Star Wars movie comes out. All the Star Wars people are going. Of course. Like, it's just, just sign it up. Like, just charge my credit card. And I think Fast, the Fast Furious franchise, I never totally know what to call it. Because it's been the Fast and the Furious, Fast Furious. I just, I, call, I just call it the Fast franchise. The Fast franchise. Okay. Yeah. Um, it earned season ticket status for me av- between four and five. Well, I think, you know, the I think four it, was so satisfying and it was like, all right, they've gotten it. They figured out the family part, which obviously your godfather one and two thing. You, yeah. There's some DNA in that. But once they figured out that it was really about family and friendship and Dom's the center of that and that's what he cared. That's when it felt like it could just keep going and going and keep adding people. But I but I think that movie audiences are so fickle. I think that you go make a bad one and oh really, that, yeah really that screwed. goes without saying um so we 
honestly, you know, everybody talks about, oh, eight, nine, ten, it's a trilogy, da, 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 da. And I keep saying to everybody involved in the movie, no, no, let's make eight great, and then we'll worry about nine. Like, we kind of have the big overarching ideas of what that eight, nine, ten can it's be. Outer space. And, yeah, exactly. And, the White and, House. And I know we're definitely the, what the last scene the, of it's going to be. Um, but I don't really know what's going to happen in between it, and I don't think any of us really do. We were just determined to make eight great. I think coming off of seven where people emotionally so clicked with that film, I think there was a lot of people doubting as to why there needed to be a, an eight. And I said to everybody, Who I think are these people? I want to a lot of people. And I th- it's terrible. And I, uh, and I think that eight had is, has just a lot of pressure on it about it being worthy and honestly I feel like we really didn't meet the challenge I there were many times during the process where I wasn't sure we were going to meet, be able to meet the challenge but now that I look at the end product and I look at it watch it with an audience it definitely has met those those goals what's been the most expensive of the eight uh, to make eight. number eight. Oh, eight. yes for sure because all those cities you went to or the all salaries the or everything and just think about the amount of uh, big actors we have in the cities and travel and success Who's the biggest actor who wanted to be in this series, but you couldn't cram him or her in? You know, it's interesting. It wasn't until recently that we've actually had actors come to us who wanted to be part of Fast and Furious. It used to be we had to beg people to be involved with a Fast yeah. and Furious movie. People, you know, I never felt like I felt like we were the, 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 the team that didn't get that much respect. And now it's turned. And that's why, like, both Charlize and Helen Mirren and Stay Them and The Rock, you know, people start, have started to come to us and say we want to be involved in the franchise. Is so, there anybody you didn't fit in that um, or you can't say? No, there has no. But we have some ideas of who we want to have going forward. So is that all you have to do to be in? You just have to ask? Uh, I, think, can I, 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 I think, sure, we'll put you in as a, do you want to play a dead body or something? <laughs> no, I, don't I, don't I want to have like, I want to be in the Ferrari and make some catty comments. You're somebody. a little old for that. I'm too old? You're too old. Maybe I could, I don't Unless know, like maybe a douche, Range Rover? Maybe, no, maybe you could be like the douchebag in the Range Rover. <laughs> I'll do it. Have so I'll do whatever. Okay, that's fair enough. <laughs> I, that was part was reserved for me, but I will give it to you. Thank you. I appreciate it. So no, nobody, you never swatted anyone away? No athletes? Um, we've had, had a couple. We've athletes. had a lot of musicians who have come to us. Rappers. A lot of rappers have come to us, and uh, definitely athletes. But I am just really, just like there are certain car companies that come to us and want their cars to be part of our film. Yeah. I feel like that if they don't fit what a Fast and Furious movie is, there's no way. No matter how much money they want to offer us to have their car in the movie, there's no way I'm putting them in the movie. It just so takes you, the reality. You guys pick the cars. You don't. There's no back anything. Uh, well, no, we, we well, we do have a relationship with Dodge, okay. but those cars, the only reason we have that is because those cars fit our movie, right? Yeah. Whereas other car companies have come to us, they just don't fit what a Fast and Furious movie is, and our audience can smell it. Like, you know, we're like the poster child for diversity in movies, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of other movies have tried to do that, but it, when it doesn't feel organic to the subject matter or the type of movie you're making, the audience smells it and they just like, oh, so they put an Asian guy and an Hispanic girl and a, uh, a black guy. So, you know, to fill out, you know, to attract an audience, whereas for our movie, it, it feels organic. And we've always been, I think, the movie, the inclusive movie versus the exclusive movie. And I think that 
you know, most people believe that they could come be a part of our crew and be accepted for who they are because that's kind of what we've tried to establish. Uh, so Dom's and, and never going to drive a Volkswagen Jetta because they offered I a lot of money. I don't think so. Like that. I don't think so. What about Corona? Corona's doing. You and Corona, Corona. have some sort of relationship. Corona. We love Corona. Dom drinks a lot of Corona. Yes, he does. Now, you got to teach Vin Diesel how to drink a beer he, before he, like Fast Ten. He holds it like he this. He always tilts it all the way oh, up, yeah. like like he upside it, down. He holds it like this. Yeah, does he not? Does, I don't know. It's isn't his there thing. a beer drinking coach? But he does that in person too. So that's like his that's move. His, that's his thing. I've never seen anyone drink a beer I, like I, that. I've never seen that either. I think, I think that, it's, it's his thing. signature. It's his signature, uh, for sure. It's definitely. I it's definitely interesting. Maybe he never drinks beer other than no. He does. He likes beer. It's like watching when some actors are trying to smoke and they hold their fingers wrong and you can tell they're not smokers. Luckily, you know, you can't really have smoking in movies anymore. All the the studios have really banned it from being able to have a movie unless it's like a period piece or unless it's like some filmmaker that has such power that he can convince the studio. So is Corona the official beer of Fast and Furious? Official beer of Fast and Furious. It is. Unpaid. When did that happen? Unpaid. Unpaid unpaid official beer of Fast and Furious. Unpaid. You've done like hundreds of millions of dollars of advertising for them. I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. But, they could float you like a uh, you know, five spot or something. Uh, or just give me a lifetime of Corona beer. Yeah, they should be, be mailing I should have cases a pallet. and cases. I should have a pallet of it in front of my house right now. You should have a giant keg of it. Uh, who is the worst driver of all the, all the fast franchise people that you had to really do the most work with? Um, I think Nat- Natalie Emanuel. I don't remember being a great driver. I'm trying to remember. There was somebody who had not driven before our movie, and I can't remember who it was. Um, but most of them, Michelle's great. All right. Uh, uh, Vin can drive. Uh, Tyrese can drive. Ludacris can drive. Vin just can't run. You have to hide his running. Um, it's like the running's a little. Yeah. Just a couple of good YouTube clips of Vin. Luckily, he doesn't have to run very much. He's in, life. in a car. He doesn't. Yeah. He can, doesn't have to run very he's much totally, in life because people usually run away from him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But you know, when you're big and strong, it's a little harder to run. What's the biggest complaint you get about the franchise from people? Like, do they go, like, why did you kill off, um, what's her name, Gail Godot? Gail Godot and Han. Why? I still don't understand why they had to die. If I know I, it had to advance the had, story. If I had one thing to do in the franchise, that we, I would not have killed them. What was they thinking of killing them? Uh, Justin really, really felt, uh, for dramatic purposes, it was really important thing to do to launch us into the third act of that movie. And we had so many discussions about it. And ultimately, we went with his wishes, but... Um, as much as I love Justin, that would probably be the one thing that I would have probably changed. I have Justin. I have a good mutual friend, and the theory the mutual friend has is the Asian character was Justin's proxy in the movie, and Justin knew he wasn't coming back. I, I and think that, that was his way of like. I think I think there could be some truth to that, but he likes he likes Sung Kang so much that I don't necessarily believe that he would want to take his livelihood away from him. So I'm not sure I believe in that. Um, I think that he just felt like from a story point and a character point that it was that it was really, really important. I mean, and, you know, I have to say it's been a very, very collaborative experience with all the directors we worked with. We've had, let's see, Rob Cohen, John Singleton, um, uh, uh, Justin, James Wan and Gary Gray, five directors in eight movies. And we've encouraged each one of them to do when they come into the series is to make it their own. Really put your stamp on it. Make it your own. Make it your own vibe. And just like if we feel like you're getting outside of what a Fast and Furious movie is, believe me, we'll let you know. But push the boundaries. Like, go for it. Make it different. What's the biggest flaw in, in any of the movies that you wish you could just go back and fix? It's the biggest flaw. 
my performance in number one, for sure. That's I'd a, recast that's a, that. You could, I would have cast you. You could have done it. That was really bad. I would. My personal biggest flaw is Vin being able to study the start, the tire tracks after Letty's mysterious death, and just knowing from the tracks and knowing, putting his finger on the powder and knowing only two shops in L.A. made it. it was, I don't think anyone's that good. I'm it sorry. Was, it was our CSI moment. Yeah, we took, no. it, we took it right out of CSI. And, and it was like CSI for actually, cars. Actually, you know what? Gary, Gary Scott Thompson. I'm sorry. Uh, which was the show? The, the writer of the first one, Gary Scott Thompson, did one of the shows. So I'm going to chalk it up to that. Not CSI. That's what it was. Show. He's he got like the flashbacks. Yeah. He can all of a sudden he can see the crash. He's I mean, I loved it. I'm not complaining, but I, that you, that could be the good news is is when you have characters that people love. Yeah, they let you skip by that. They're going to buy everything. As long as they love the characters. And Vince gives great toasts, which I think, I mean, Vin gives uh, great toasts, which... We have great barbecue and great, great toasts. Great barbecue, great... great sa- Salud mi familia and a lot I just, of those stuff. That you know what the helps. regret I have is that I didn't buy the Toretto house in Boyle Heights back in the day because I would have charged a fortune. Is that like us. a tourist attraction now? Oh, it's a tourist attraction. And more importantly, just think about how many times we've, as a production, have gone back there. I could have charged myself oh a lot God, of money. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. You're plus, right. Plus that area when we first started in 2000 was crappy and now it's like full on hip. I know. I was going to say that probably the most unrealistic scene in the movie is that Boyle Heights is this kind of, you know, you're on the streets, you're living in, it's not the case anymore. Back then it was. Back then in 2000 it was, yes. yeah. I think you'd have now trouble. It's very, now it's very high priced uh, neighborhood. Yeah, you'd have to go really in the outskirts of LA now to find yeah, um, that, or or super, super inner city, one or the other. But it's it, it, it was really fun on 7 to go back there. You know, I mean, it's just, uh, yesterday I was driving up to our set in Los Feliz on SWAT uh, and I drove by the corner where we had shot one of the last scenes with uh, Paul Walker, and I just like it was flashbacks. And you know, we used to be able to shoot so many movies and so much of things in Los Angeles, and I have so many memories from shooting. And now we never get to shoot in L.A. because there's no tax break anymore. So it not it, a lot of places to go. Where'd you shoot the big, the big fight scene at the end of? Uh, what's the one where Rock has the broken arm? Six. Uh, six. We shot that in Atlanta. Not downtown L.A. No, unfortunately. I feel like that would have been a major news story if downtown LA had been just completely annihilated like yeah, that. Yeah, you know, that was... I mean, there are blocks actually, and blocks of just complete destruction. But that that that's not one of my uh, uh, favorite scenes, that chase through through the city, that the third act there. Uh, I love the, the, the fight and stuff between Paul Walker and Tony Jaw through that yeah. building. Um, but I wasn't crazy about the whole kind of, you know, it's a, it's a city. weak spot when people, when I've had the arguments about what's the best fast yeah. movie, that's what I throw at the people who say fast six. I, the, the climactic scene isn't, isn't quite there. Right. In I, my I opinion. Don't... But when rock goes out the window in the first 20 minutes, it's awesome. That's like, it's awesome. It's just jarring. It's like, is he dead? Did they yeah. just kill him off? What happened? I mean, he's barely in Fast Six. He's got like f- six scenes. He didn't shoot that many much time in Fast Six. Yeah, he's too of, famous. Because you the, barely the, get him. I think it was the availability of what he was shooting at the same time. I can't remember, but you know, we just the people that we have in these movies are in demand for a lot of different things. So it's it's really hard to get everybody back together. At one point, we had decided, thought, could we shoot like Fast um, Six and Seven at the same time? You know, go back to back, and just with the schedules and the amount of time it sh- takes to shoot each of these movies, and more importantly, the fact that we never it would ever be able to have two scripts finished right. just made it impossible. When did you realize that this was like a 
multi-billion dollar franchise. Did you see that coming in during Fast 4 or like was it not until Fast 6? I think it was Fast, end of Fast 4 going into Fast 5 where we started to see such an upswing and we were starting to get um, uh, just we used to be like a one and a half quadrant film like you know it would be like guys under 25 and half of girls under 25 and as the movies just kept going, we've evolved to the fact now we're a four-quadrant movie. It's men, women, young, old. We get everybody now. It's become almost like a family experience, you know. Um, and uh, that's where you started to see the, the transition where we became much more of a, uh, a broader movie than just kind of a genre movie. I, I, I'm a huge fan of kind of B genre movies. And Roger Corman, who made a lot of the uh, B movies back in the day, and his office is literally like 50 yards from mine and was one of my idols. Um, the way we got the title for Fast and Furious was we were making the first one and it, it was called Red Line. It was called Street Wars. It was called Race Wars. It was la- all these lame titles. Yeah. And I remember going to a documentary on American International Pictures, Pictures, which made all the Beach Party movies and all the Hells Angels movies and the Vincent Price movies. And that was a company that my family had been involved in my whole life. And I went to see this documentary on it and I was watching it and they were going a section over the, the Roger Corman movies. And I said to my dad during, I said, that I need a title like Roger Corman would come up with. And they started talking about a movie called Fast and Furious. And I'm like, that's the fucking title. Excuse me. But that's the no, title. That's, that's, that's the title. And I remember calling Universal the next morning and I called the head up the company and I said okay I think I got the title and I said he said what is it and I sheepishly said the Fast and Furious and there was just silence on the other end and he's like I'm not sure let me think about it and I'm like oh wow I'm a real idiot that was a lame title it sounds great now but then it was like the Fast and Furious and then a day later he calls me back and he goes you know what ever since that I can't stop thinking about it that's what we got to name it and I go okay let's go to Roger Corman who made the title and we went to Roger Corman and we traded him stock footage from old Universal movies for the title. And that's how we got the title. Oh, man, he should ask for more. He should have gotten some draft picks. It's funny, I'm going to actually go see him on Friday. (laughs) But he should have definitely gotten more. But at the time, you know, now it's like, you know, they're naming military programs after The Fast and the Furious and stuff like this. But at the time, honestly, when I first said it, it sounded lame. I mean, you could have just called it Fast because that's basically what it became. But remember, then there was another movie called Fast. I can't remember. There was? I think so. Faster. I think Dwayne Johnson might have actually Faster. been in it. I barely remember that. I, was, I've seen I, so many action movies I think it was directed by like George Tillman or hmm. something like this. Well, it's a good title. Yeah. But then you did, it was weird, you did Fast, fast and Furious, Too Fast. Fa- was it The Fast and... It was The Fast and The Furious. The Fast was, and The Furious, then but then it was fast, fast and Furious. Then it was Too Fast, Too Furious, then it was uh, <laughs> fast, Tokyo Drift, then it was right. Fast and Furious, then it was, I can't get them all confused now. Fast 15 would be like Furious and Fast. It was Fast 5, Furious 6, you know. we just Furious at being fast. And I kind of, I wasn't sure, to be honest, I wasn't sure about the fate of the Furious. Yeah. Um, at first they wanted it to be Fate of Furious, and I was like, no, if we're going to do that, it's got to be the, fa- the Fate of the Furious. Yeah. That, that I can live with. So, going backwards quick, so you move, did you move to Hollywood to become a producer? No, I actually grew up in Westwood in Los Angeles. Okay. Um, I had always been um, around the film business. My uh, grandfather owned a lot of the movie theaters, in, or not a lot, but movie theaters in downtown Los Angeles. 
my father and his sisters were the ushers and managers of those theaters. One of the ushers at my grandfather's theaters asked him for a $5,000 loan to start a distribution company. That loan became American International Pictures, which made all the movies I talked about, the Vincent Price movies, the Hells Angels movies, the Billy Jack movies. Um, my father and like our family Jack. was one of the ones who ran the, ran the company. As a kid, I worked in the mailroom there. I worked on some of the sets of the movies. Uh, I went to UCLA undergraduate. Uh, uh, and in uh, my junior year, I went on something called Semester at Sea, where I go around the school, around the world on a boat for school with 600 students. When I was in China in 1981, every kid in China was carrying these school bags, these canvas bags with these class, with this Chinese writing on it. I brought them back um, here, uh, gave them away as presents. Uh, next thing I know, people were asking me where they could get these. Me and my buddy started a company in 1981 making these women's purses. We had a factory in, Chi in Taiwan. Wow. Um, uh, luckily enough, did pretty well was able to sell the company to an investor that we had taken on, went back to graduate school at USC to something called the Peter Stark Motion Picture Producing Program. Um, did that for two years, got out, tried to get a job. There were no jobs. And I'm like, what the what hell am I going to do? It's like 1985. And I said, screw it. I'll just hang up my shingle and try and make it happen. And I just tried to make it happen. And luckily, you know, 60 movies later, I'm sitting here. What was your first break that Got you some momentum. I, I kind of look at it. There was a lot of little breaks, but I made like three movies in a row for HBO. Then I made. What were the three? Um, I've seen every HBO uh, movie. I made a movie called Rat Pack. I made. I loved Rat Pack. Yeah, I made, we, we nominated for. It was I mean, really good. One of my favorites. It's a really hard yeah. one to pull off Sinatra and Dean Martin, yeah, all amazing. these people, because they yeah. were so indelible. Yeah. Anyway, Liotta, I thought that was a good Ray one. Liotta, Don Cheadle, Joe Montana. Yeah. Uh, then I made. By the way, that's probably on HBO. We should. It's probably on HBO Go. I'm guessing they have like I don't know. all I their seen old it in stuff. So long. It's really if anybody likes Sinatra and those people, I would I would go download that one. That was a good one. Then I made a movie called Blind Justice with Armando Sante. Then I made a movie called Framed with um, uh, Jeff Goldblum and Kristen Scott Thomas. Those were all for HBO. Then I made uh, like Cruel Intentions was one of my earliest films. Then I made uh, a movie I mean, called Juice, which we introduced well, to the world. Let's go back to, to Cruel world. Intentions. We just did a Reese Witherspoon podcast oh, on our it. Channel 33 pod. And I was saying, like, that was the sweet spot of, I'm going to say from, like, 97 to 2001. It was a little pre-internet. It was definitely before all the devices and all yes. this stuff. When Hollywood was just flooding the market with teen movies and yes. horror movies. But this was a... And all this stuff. And this was, like, the Dangerous Liaisons. It was like, wow, this is rated yeah. R. that. It was awesome. It's yeah. one of my favorites. One of my favorites, too, and one of my favorite experiences. Those were all my friends because I had made I Know What You Did Last Summer right yeah. before that. And that's oh, you made I, that one, too? Yeah. That one's on cable constantly. Yeah. I hope you're getting paid for yeah, that one. Yeah, luckily. Both of them, that one and the sequel, they're on all the yeah. time. And that's where I met Sarah, and that's where I met Ryan, and then Ryan met Reese on the audition for I Know What You Did Last Summer. We all knew each other, and then we put that together. I raised the financing independently. Me and my buddy Roger Cumble went off and made that movie completely on our own. What happens if they switch parts, her and Sarah Michelle Gellar? I don't know if it works. We talked about that on the on the Reese podcast. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know if it works. Because Reese is probably, Reese is not like the goody two-shoes she plays in that no, movie. And she no. could have played the other one. And Sarah Michelle Gellar is like trying to go against type because yeah. people thought she's like the heroine in Buffy and she's always kind of. It could have worked, I guess. I never thought that. We just We actually just made a pilot for a Cruel Intentions TV show for NBC that didn't get picked up but was really close and it came out really good, really well. It's kind of, 
Well, first of all, great soundtrack. In oh, that movie. Uh, well, the song by The Verb, Bittersweet. Yeah, yeah, like it really captures whatever late '90s music. There's scene a whole story in there. just trying yeah. to get that song. The only reason we got that song is because we had tried to get it for so long, but they were in a lawsuit with the Rolling Stones over. Uh, uh, they sued them for ripping the song. Oh no! Uh, and they had to pay the Rolling Stones off, and we ended up paying like a million dollars to get that song. But it was I don't, worth it. I don't know if there's any other song that could have fit that like that. We were talking about good music slash scene endings. That's a, that's another one that's probably in the conversation. Yeah, I made Sweet Home Alabama with Reese as well. A uh, rom-com Hall of Famer. Yeah, it was great. Uh, and then we made, I made one of my favorite movies I ever made was to, uh, Juice with Tupac Shakur about the kids growing oh, up in Harlem. Yeah. That's my favorite movie. Oh, yeah. Tate, you got yeah. Tate woke yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah, that's I saw it, Juice in the theater just for the if record. I, if I could show you the picture of what I looked like when I made that movie in 19, I guess 91 ish, um, I was a full on surfer kid with long blonde hair. Yeah. But I was living in Harlem, making this movie, wearing my Malcolm X hat with my big, you know, cordless uh, phone at the time. And it was an amazing experience for like a white Jew boy from, you know, Westwood to be living in Harlem making this movie with these. My, some of my favorite people of all time, Public Enemy, did the music for the movie. And it was just an amazing life experience. And I look at that movie all the time and I'm happy, you know, so happy with well, it. Well, we got to talk about Pac now because well, I he was, feel like the acting, he was the this, acting side of him is the part that gets lost. And people are like, oh, man, we miss Tupac and Biggie. And it's like Tupac was a really good actor. He was the smartest, one of the smartest people I'd ever met, but probably the angriest person. I'd ever met. That doesn't surprise me. And when we, this is true about how he got that role. We were auditioning every young kid um, for that movie. And we could not find who who the role of Bishop should be. We couldn't find it. And we were getting so frustrated. We were getting near the start of production. And we just were, like, we knew how pivotal that role was. And every rapper was coming in to audition. And this one guy from Digital Underground comes in. And he's just not good. But with him is his roadie, Tupac. And I remember I, I was so kind of down in the dumps, go to the bathroom, and Tupac catches me on the way out, and he says, you know, I can do that shit. And I go, do what? What? He says, I can do that. And I said, okay, well, take the sides. Here they are, and come back in in 15 minutes. And we're sitting there, and he comes back in. He comes in, he reads it, and he is Bishop. He does that scene of him at the locker where the... Locker opens and he gives that haunting speech to Omar Epps, uh, uh, play, uh, who was playing the role of Q, where he basically tells him, "You, you do what I say. Uh, you know, you're gonna die," kind of thing. And that was it. He got the role. And uh, I, know, that's unbelievable. I almost don't believe that. Hundred percent true. I could do that, and then he just grabs the script and disappears. We, we, we were so desperate at the time, and he was incredible in the movie. He had. He was incredible in that movie. Yeah, that's and, a really good movie. And you know, he, 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 he had so much soul to himself. He wasn't. He, I think, he wanted to be this kind of tough gang element guy. But in reality, he was uh, a smart guy who just couldn't control his temper, and yeah. ultimately, it, it got him. I mean, I. I admired him. I, I really loved him. And I remember saying to him, dude, you, if you don't come down, you're going to get yourself killed. I was, you know, I was in Vegas when the, at the fight when he was killed or he was shot. And then, um, you know, I was at his funeral in, in Atlanta. It was just, it was such a sad thing to see such a guy who was so talented go down like that. Did he ever get mad at you? Probably. Probably. You blocked it out of your mind, probably. Probably. I don't know. You know, it's, fu- it's funny when you catch some of these stars on their ri- uh, on the rise up. 
um, they still kind of remember you in a different way. Like I was always kind of the boss to him. Yeah. So it, it never came back. I had a very good relationship with him and he, and he heard my advice. Doesn't mean that he, he took it, but he definitely heard what I was saying. So it was all baby steps that led to the fast franchise. Yeah. It sounds like were, a lot of successes. And there was, I am legend. There was click, yeah. there was SWAT, there was triple, there was a lot, a lot of movies along the way that all felt like, gigantic steps at the time but when I look back they were all little steps leading me to be able to do something like this how many people are still in Fast 8 that were there in Fast 1 I am up until Fast 7 it was me and the costume designer and she couldn't do 8 so I'm the only person who's been involved with all 8 movies amazing yeah it's pretty amazing so for, so from Fast 1 Vin's obviously there yes but, but I mean they, he took a couple breaks but then he wasn't in 2 Right. And then it was, was anyone else from, and I guess Michelle Rodriguez, she went away and came uh, back. Paul was in all except Paul was in the first seven. Uh, well, oh, no, was he it, was it not in, in three. three. Yeah. So that's it. I mean, it's really interesting, but that's, you know, so it's a big part of my life, obviously. So we have outer space is left. No, we're not going to ask. I did passengers this year. That took my care of my outer space. <laughs> really. So I'm done with space now. <laughs> Pa- uh, passengers was that Jennifer Lawrence Chris no Pratt. no I remember but uh, I mean it was critically panned yeah it was but did, int- it, did it do well though we did throw over 300 million dollars worldwide on that movie so but how do you justify that if people don't seem to like the movie that the, much but it does well because that's what happened was then that was a very valuable lesson to me um, I loved that movie I yeah. loved it it was one of my favorite experiences making a movie I love Chris Pratt I love Jennifer Lawrence I loved the director I thought the script was one of the best scripts I had ever read. And there was a weird thing that happened. We had, you know, done a new, numerous test screenings on that movie that were very, very encouraging to us. And we had, pro, you know, arguably two of the biggest stars in the world between Jennifer and Chris Pratt. And everything was looking great. And around 10 days before that movie came out, the first review came out. And a review came out where the reviewer said that we were um, uh, justifying date rape. That we were, and I was like, what? And I thought back to all the screenings that we had, and nobody had ever thought that. And, but it was weird. One guy said that, and a lot of the media picked up on that, and it became the mantra that that film kind of carried. And I thought it was a really unfair thing because I think it's a beautiful film that I couldn't be more proud of. And I, I, I love the movie. Um, but it was weird how the media sometimes that can happen to you to and a it movie. seems like they didn't like it immediately and then that just became what held yeah but it was I weird. didn't follow it that closely but, but was that interesting. was my perception but what was, what was interesting is, is that our audience reaction and our kind of our cinema score from people who actually saw the movie was really good hmm. so it was it was a hard it was a hard one because I really thought it was I thought it, you know it did it did do very good business but I thought it was going to do excellent business and I thought that was actually a movie that did have a chance to be rewarded with quite a few uh, rewards. We got a bunch of like technical awards, but I really thought it was gonna there was gonna be more to it. So it just shows you um, in the movie business, it doesn't matter how great the experience of making the movie is or how bad the experience is. One doesn't guarantee success, and one doesn't guarantee failure. You could have the worst experience ever making a movie, and it can be a huge success, and it could be the other way around as well. What's the success rate of those test cards? I went through it once because I was one of the producers on Million Dollar Arm, and the uh, and the scores for it were like phenomenal, and they were like, "This is like the best Disney sport." And then it was like, uh, didn't do that well. I think I think that there's there are two things. One tells you um, if you can get people into the movie theaters and they see the movie, 
that's what that test score represents. But there's a whole other thing is, is the movie marketable? Like, can you get people to show up to the movie theater? And that's two very different things. Okay, so what? So if the test card says to you... I look at two things. You're probably not getting people to the movie theater. Then what do you do? Well, I look at two different things. I look at test, test scores of the screenings. That's one. And then I look at test scores of our marketing materials. Because when we make trailers and we make commercials, we test those. And we're able to tell whether those materials are working enough to bring people to the theaters. Did you ever get fooled by the wrong results with um, with the movie? Yeah, I don't think they're exact, and I don't take anything verbatim. I don't take, but I try and take the general comments to try and understand the general things that are people saying, the macro. The way I look at my job as the producer is I really, as much as I'm involved with the micro of movies, I really try and keep a macro perspective of yeah. the movies. I try and keep kind of an 800 foot perspective of the movies and make sure that we're not, nobody's getting lost in the weeds because ultimately, you know, you're spending 90% of your marketing dollars the last 10 days before a movie comes out and you're, 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 you're trying to get people into a movie based on most of the time, a 30 second spot. Are you able to crystallize what that message is and make it interesting enough that you're going to get people to get off the couch drive somewhere, spend money to go see your movie. It's, I, I don't think that we'll ever figure it out, especially now. That's the hardest thing about the movie. It just seems like it's getting more and more confusing. And then you look at the Oscars and like, I, I never in a million years would I have thought La La Land was going to make like $400 million. Well, I, I see think, something like that. I'm like, well, I, there's just no way we're going to figure this the out. The thing I think about La La Land is that I think it was different. It was it was unique and it was original. But there's been a lot of different original movies, not not one that crossed over like that. Well, You couldn't I, have expected that. I didn't expect that it was going to do. I don't know if it did $400 million, but I don't know so what. So it was over 300 Yeah, I don't know what it, it did very well. I didn't think it was going to do that much, but once that just got that critical thing going, it was just it just kept going and going and going. I mean, even if you look at a little movie like Moonlight, which wins, yeah, you know, who would have ever thought they'd do thirty million dollars? I mean, it's such a tiny little personal story. So, but once you get into that bubble of the machine of the you know the critics and the awards and all that stuff working behind you, it does it definitely helps. Well, so you're at eight. I, I don't think anyone could have seen eight fast movies. What were there, five diehards? Um, you know, I think... This has to be the non-James Bond record, right? Somebody told me that for a movie non-based on an IP, not based on a comic book or a book or a play or something that Just we, an original script. Original idea that we have that this the is the most... Yeah, because there's... I mean, there's been... I don't know how many Harry Potters, but that's based on a book. James Bond was based on... Uh, a, a book you know there's there's all source material for those things that had a popularity to those properties before they became movies and what's interesting is I, I just don't imagine this movie going without Vin Diesel and so um, like James Bond there were other you know they had what seven James Bonds and James Bond was kind of character nobody else could be Dom Toretto True. And I can't imagine anybody else being the anchor of, of the thing. So it kind of goes on for as long as he wants it to go. Yeah. Or or there, or you create a universe where there's become spinoff of uh, of different movies with individual characters is something oh, that's almost a like a comic well. book. Yeah. yeah. It's a possibility. But we're determined right now, you know, to really concentrate on. So Tyrese is getting a spinoff is what you're trying to tell us. Uh, if you ask him, he was. <laughs> 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 Neil, thank you. This thank you so great. much. I appreciate love the it. franchise. Keep them coming. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks for the support. Thanks so much to Joe House. Thanks to Neil Moritz. 
Thanks to Simply Safe. In the past, you couldn't order home security online, but now with Simply Safe Home Security, it's a snap to do it. They make it easier than ever to protect your home and family. It takes less than an hour to set up your system and protect your home even better. No long-term contracts. 24-7 professional protection service for just $15 a month. Go to simplysafebs.com. Protect your home. Get 10% off. That's Simply Safe with two eyes. BS.com. And thanks to the Ringer NBA show, you can find me there later this week, breaking down the playoffs with Chris Vernon. Download or subscribe as soon as you can because it's going to happen. We're going to break some stuff down. I, I will give you one gambling tip that will win you money on one of those round one series. Finally, don't forget about the Ringer MLB show only on TuneIn. Playing for free right now for the month of April. And if you go to TuneIn.com Ringer, you get a free 60-day trial of TuneIn Premium. And you can listen to every live MLB game because you should be doing that because it's baseball season. We have one more podcast coming up later in the week. And again, I am on the Ringer NBA show if you want to hear me talk about hoops. Until then. <laughs>